Well, I thought for today that since we're looking at Romans as God's blueprint for relationships, I would Google it. A simple search for relationships uh, in Google returned a mere 164 million results uh, and of course they're only the ones in English. Had I searched for relationships across all languages around the world, uh, I'm sure I would have got many millions more. Uh, It would seem that relationships are a very popular topic and why not, I guess, as most of us spend most of our waking hours in relationships with various people doing different things. But I expect that uh, most of us only need to look around us or at most to look at the statistics in Australia to see that although we are all involved in relationships every day with many people, often we don't tend to do these relationships fantastically well. We may benefit from some help in our relationships, uh, which is why I'm sure God writes books like this one. Uh, Indeed, as we are here this morning, there's no better time to ask ourselves about that most important relationship in our lives, our relationship with God. And so I'll ask you this morning, how is your relationship, your personal relationship with God going? Has it been improved and strengthened as we've been going through Romans and we've heard about various aspects of how God relates to us? Like a doctor who spent some time uh, checking the physical condition of your heart with a stethoscope and a few questions and maybe a few admonitions to stop eating so much fatty food or whatever it might be. Uh, Today we're going to spend some time checking out the spiritual health of our hearts toward God. By our heart I mean the core of our being, that part of us that gets sad when we see a friend in trouble or gets happy when we see a mate get a job, that part of us that makes decisions, that understands, that determines our attitude. That's what I mean by heart. You might call it heart and mind, depending on how you understand uh, the mind. Now, it might feel a little strange uh, for some of us talking about our hearts and how we feel, uh, especially for those not as in touch with their feelings as uh, modern, sensitive, new age guys like Chris Ryder are. But uh, Sorry, Chris, you're the only one here this morning. So, yeah. <laughs> Uh, I think it's obvious when we think about our hearts um, that that kind of deep foundational core of our being that this is in fact what uh, shapes every area of our lives. Out of our hearts come our decisions, our attitudes, the things that we do day by day. And this makes what is in our hearts so incredibly important because it will affect every single thing we do. Last week, as we've already looked at a bit this morning, uh, we heard from Romans 4... Uh, and we heard from Romans 4, chapter, chapter 4, verse 25 this morning as a bit of a recap of this chapter, uh, that Jesus Christ, in having died on the cross, is effectively offering us the best free lunch ever, righteousness by faith. I don't know about you, but I love a free lunch, uh, and what could possibly be better than the free lunch of eternal salvation, simply by believing in Christ. I wonder, as you heard the message last week and as we think think about it now, as we've spent the last uh, hour thinking about it through various aspects, what impact does this truth have on you? Righteousness by faith. This free ticket to heaven without having to do anything ourselves, simply by believing. How does it make you feel? 
What way is your heart responding to this fantastic gift? As we continue on this morning into Romans 5, we will see that Paul is asking us this same question. Has your heart, has my heart been changed and excited in knowing we have this fantastic gift waiting for us? The first relationship question, make sure I point in the right direction and push the right button. I've got to turn it on first. Right? Uh, The first relationship or heart question I would like to ask this morning uh, is this. Is there hope in your relationship with God? Do you have hope in God? You will notice that I've written hope with a capital H as Paul is talking of a very particular kind of hope here. It's a particular hope because... It's not in a sinful man uh, or woman whose heart might change, but it's in God. He's the guy who's given us his promise of eternal life. It's in God who has authority and is someone we can trust. This is not hope we would use for something like, you know, I hope the weather will be good tomorrow or I hope my Tatsuato ticket comes up. Uh, No, this is a sure hope that we know will come to pass. And it's a particular hope because of what it's hoping in. Now, I'm still on free lunches, I love food. Uh, I hope every day at work that there will be a free lunch. There's nothing more exciting to me than knowing that that day at work I'm going to have a free lunch. And I must admit, I do hope that even if I don't get a free lunch, someone else gets a free lunch and there will be some leftovers at the end of it that uh, I can enjoy. Uh, But not only is this hope here that Paul's talking about It's not in something so tenuous as whether I may or may not get free lunch, but it's also not in something so temporary. It's in something eternal, something that will last forever for the rest of time. Nothing else can compare. I I wonder, do you have a dream holiday that you've thought of? Maybe it's a dream weekend. Maybe you'd like to go away for two years, whatever it is. Maybe you have a dream job that you're striving towards. Maybe... Your dreams are more about your family. Well, think of them all together if you want. Think of them going on for eternity, for the rest of your life on earth. Every single day for the rest of your life you will have this dream job or this dream family, this dream holiday. Even that, as fantastic as it would be, even that can't compare to what God is offering us in eternity with God. This time on earth, when we look back at it in the context of heaven, this time on earth will be just a blink, won't it? So the question for us, do we, do we really yearn for this eternity? Do we fix our eyes on it? Do we focus it and keep it in the centre of our minds? Now, when I was younger, uh, I had a good mate and his mum uh, was in a car accident and she was telling us about what happened as she had the accident right in the middle. Uh, and she said... Uh, just seconds after the accident started she realised something bad was going to happen and she just threw up her arms and cried out, help me God, help me God. And she was driving, you know, and she, she said, help me God, I can't do anything. And it was, I, I thought it was an amazing example of just an unconscious automatic response to go straight to God. She didn't try and work her own way out of her situation, she went straight to the guy who could actually help as we reflect, 
in our own lives when we're pushed, when we find ourselves in hard spots? Do we go straight to God for our hope? Or perhaps, like me, you find yourself being distracted and trying to find solace and hope in other things. Perhaps we try to find hope in the love that we get from a spouse or a best friend or our parents or our workmates. Uh, Perhaps we find hope in how well we can do our job or how much money we think we're worth. Perhaps we're so distracted by uh, drink or sex or power or uh, general busyness or whatever it is that we don't actually find ourselves with enough time to think about what we should be hoping for, let alone start hoping in it. And I know I'm guilty of those things myself. I find myself so easily distracted by things that can't even compare to an eternity in heaven and yet day by day those things keep jumping up, don't they? They always want your attention. There's always something that wants you to be busy or concerned or worried about it. Uh, C.S. Lewis, the great Christian author, uh, once said this. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Let us not be like these children in the slums. Let us cling instead, uh, like Claire showed us such a great example this morning, let us cling instead to God's offer of infinite joy in his heavenly kingdom. What better hope could we possibly have? And what more could anyone possibly offer us than an eternity of happiness? As this hope for eternity grows in our hearts and affects the way we think, it will obviously also affect our day-to-day lives. This hope for eternity will give us joy that no matter what happens tomorrow, no matter what comes or maybe no matter what happens today, we have this glorious inheritance waiting for us. This hope for eternity will give us motivation to share this joy and hope with our friends and our family. And this hope for eternity will give us willingness to persevere and endure. And it's fantastic, isn't it, not to just uh, hear these things academically, but to see them lived out in people's lives and to be able to share this morning in praying for Claire and for others who keep on enduring because they know what's lying in front of them. And it will give us willingness to persevere and endure doing things in God's way. Uh, Things that I think a lot of us can relate to, something like putting in an honest tax return and getting less money back than we would like. Uh, Maybe it's things like missing out on those things our friends do on the weekends that we know God doesn't want us to do but they constantly tell us, you're missing out, why don't you come along, You know, we're going into the clubs or we're doing whatever. Maybe it's that, maybe it's missing out on things that you, in your, your heart sometimes you feel like you're missing out but you know God doesn't want you to do it. Maybe it's speaking up for God at work or at uni or at school or at your local club and you know that if you speak up, if you express a strong opinion about God, people are going to start leaving you out of conversations. They're going to start treating you differently. I'm sure in your own life there are many ways that you can see that it makes it harder being a Christian and it would be easier to go along with the flow. But this hope, it really 
gives us the motivation to do that. And uh, we, we, we do this, of course, not because we, endure, uh, we enjoy suffering. We, we, don't, uh, we don't think suffering is great because it leads to endurance and it leads to hope. Not because we enjoy suffering, but because of what it leads to. And the interesting thing about suffering and those famous verses 3 and 4 in this chapter of Romans is that suffering merely strengthens our character. It merely clarifies in our lives what is important, which is eternity, and it just uh, increases our desire and anticipation for this joy and this glory that awaits us in heaven. The second heart or relationship question uh, I think that Paul is asking us from this passage is this in, in a relationship with God do we not only have hope but do we feel loved and by this I don't mean do we academically understand that the Bible tells us God loves us or uh, I, I don't mean you know, did we learn in Sunday school that God loves us I think what Paul is asking us here is do we in the bottom of our hearts personally feel and know God's love. When we're suffering, when we're finding life really hard, when things are busy, when we haven't got enough sleep, how do we feel about God? And for that matter, the question to ask before that is probably, how does God feel about us? Have you ever been asked, do you think God really cares about us? Do you think God really loves us? Do you really believe all that stuff? Is it possible, for example, that God is off somewhere else? I mean, it's a big universe, it's a big earth for that matter. Maybe he's so distracted with the troubles of the world over in that corner that he doesn't have the time to be concerned with our corner. Or I'm not sure if you've had friends that have expressed this opinion. Perhaps God just isn't that interested in us. Maybe he's too big and too mighty, too all-encompassing to bother with us tiny little specks on the planet Earth. At, uh, during university I used to work in Nightfield at Bunnings uh, I loved it because it was good pay and you get in there and it was nice and quiet uh, and we'd all turn up for the night it's about 15 of us and our boss would send us out to different corners of the warehouse and uh, so you stack this shelf, stack that shelf, da 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 uh, it was all quite simple and we would all head out we'd be working feverishly, you know the harder you worked the longer you got to stay into the morning when you got the really good pay so We'd all be there uh, working our guts out and I didn't realise at the time but after he did that, our boss would head back to the tea room and he'd lie down on the couch and he'd whack on a DVD and that's how he spent his time. And then we'd come back to the tea room uh, for our break and of course he'd want a new DVD so we'd watch a little bit of that in our, our break and we'd all head out and then he'd kick back, watch the rest of it and of course when we came in again, we couldn't, couldn't continue watching the, the previous DVD that we all hadn't seen the rest of. We had a new one. Uh, maybe, maybe this is what God's like. Maybe he kind of sets things up, gets people going and then he kind of retreats back to somewhere where it's kind of safe or it's more heavenly and lets things work out themselves. Or maybe God's a bit like Corporal Matthew Hopkins from the Australian Army who was posted in Afghanistan. He came across what they call an improvised explosive device uh, which is essentially a bomb and he tried to disarm it to protect his mates and protect the locals. As he tried to disable this bomb it went off and he was killed. Air Chief Marshal Angus Houston, uh, the, the top 
Defence Force guy in Australia said this to his family. I want them to be aware from the outset that their loved one died protecting his mates and was willing to sacrifice himself in order to safeguard others. Maybe God's more like this. Well, surprisingly, as we check out verse 7 in Romans chapter 5, we notice that God's love is actually not comparable to either of these. I mean, it's probably obvious to most of us that God's love is nothing like the you know, distant, disinterested boss who sets things up and then retreats off somewhere else. Uh, God is obviously involved in our lives to the extent that he sent Jesus down to earth. But what might not be immediately obvious to us is that God's love is not even like the incredible soldier who died for the guys beside him. You see that, like us, although I'm sure this soldier was a good bloke, at the end of the day, he was an imperfect person. And he was willing to die for his mates, incredible act of sacrifice. He probably thought of his mates as good blokes too. Even this incredible act of sacrifice can't compare to Jesus Christ, a perfect, perfect man who dies for us that he knows are rotten sinners. There's no fooling Jesus. A perfect man dying for a sinner is a complete step change up in love compared to an imperfect sinner dying for someone he thinks is a good bloke. And why would Christ do this for us? As Rob shared this morning, why would Christ take on so much humility and experience so much humiliation? Well, the answer is obvious, isn't it? It's love. Only love could make him do that. Incredible love that will never be equaled on earth and could never be equaled on earth between mere men. God sent his very own son, the most dear thing he could possibly send, to die on a cross for us sinful people. The second question this morning, do you feel loved? Do you know in the bottom of your heart that Jesus loves you more than anyone else could and more than anyone else ever will? Knowing God's love for us, I think, will help build up in us a love for God. It's, it's, it's a response, isn't it? We, the more we see clearly how much God loves us, the more we love God in return, the more it creates in our hearts a response to that love. Uh, knowing God's love for us will give us the motivation for what we do. There will be no room for pride or power or influence or anything like that to motivate us in what we're doing. Love will fill our hearts and we'll do, we will do things simply because it's a great way of loving people. Uh, I struggle as much as other people. If you do something, you want recognition, you want glory, you want acclamation. You feel a sense of pride in what you're able to achieve. But as we continue to understand God's love, we'll continue to do things out of love and we won't need that glory or that power or that acclamation. And knowing God's love for us will also help us as we work through, I think, those difficult relationships uh, that I'm sure we all have with other people in our lives. As, we, as our hearts fill up with love, we're able to pass that on to those around us, even if it's the annoying cousin or the self-centred workmate who doesn't clean the coffee machine after he uses it or the abrasive sibling or the overbearing parents or uh, that annoying uh, child that just seems to want to tick us off whoever it is 
we'll be able to pass on God's incredible love to them because of what we're receiving from God. And of course, as we realise God loves us despite our faults, uh, we'll be able to love others despite their faults. Uh, The third question I think Paul is asking us this morning as we work through Romans 5 is this, do we know that God will save us? When the heat is put on us, if things were taken from us, if our lives fell apart, you know, like it did for Job, if everything we loved and cherished and supported us in our understanding of the world, if that all fell away, would we still know from the bottom of our hearts not only hope and love but also assurance of salvation. We have spent some time thinking about hope and love and we hope and we love because of what Jesus has done for us on the cross. Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection are, I think, the foundation of Paul's arguments here. If these hadn't happened, then our hope and love, it would be hollow, wouldn't it? We'd be believing in something false. It would have no substance, no meaning. I wonder perhaps uh, when you've had a friend ask a lot of hard questions, have you ever found yourself short of answers for why we can be sure of our salvation? If someone today said, oh, I've had this, I'm not sure if you have, uh, they said, oh, that's, you're a Christian, that, that's really nice, you know, I like that bit about being nice to other people and treating your neighbour as yourself and, you know, doing good works, but you don't really believe all that stuff about Jesus dying on a cross for our sins, do you? You don't believe he rose to life again after three days, do you? How, how can we respond to those kind of questions? Well, one way we could actually respond is by knowing the context of Romans 5 right here in front of us. If we have a bit of a think about the person writing these words, uh, we will realise that the author, the Apostle Paul, well, he was alive at the time of Christ, He was well educated uh, and he was, before he followed Christ, a respected Pharisee who had committed almost his entire life to following the ancient traditions under Gamaliel, a famous Jewish teacher. And this guy, Paul, he was tireless in his persecution of Christians. uh, He was so angry at Christians that he was actually actively hunting them down. So we have to ask ourselves that what apart from the truth and glory of God could possibly have converted Paul from a zealous Pharisee in a tradition he had committed almost his entire life to to become one of the very followers of Jesus he'd been persecuting the day before. It's an extraordinary change and unlike the ad, it did happen overnight. Now we know Paul had the miraculous experience on the road to Damascus where he encountered Jesus in a very close and powerful way. Uh, But Paul also went on to meet the apostles, uh, to talk to them about the Jesus they knew and to find out more and more about this Jesus that he initially met at Damascus. And obviously Paul's meetings with the apostles uh, didn't weaken his faith. He didn't start finding out from the apostles, hey, you know, we're not sure about this Jesus. No, his, his meetings with the apostles strengthened his faith as he got more and more facts more and more eyewitness accounts of Jesus' life. Paul remained as convinced as he ever was that Jesus was the Son of God who really existed, really did die on the cross and really did rise again. Now if you're talking uh, to a friend or a work colleague, uh, this might only be the tip of the iceberg in your conversations 
they might uh, want much more evidence and proof than what you would simply observe from looking at Paul's life in this passage. Uh, If you have friends asking questions or perhaps even if you're asking questions or you'd like to be a bit more sure about why we can be sure in Jesus, not only his death but his resurrection, I'd encourage you to look at the resources out there. I've uh, put a few up this morning uh, that I've found very helpful. I'm sure there are others. Uh, The one on the left, The Case for Christ, that's a bit more modern, uh, as in a more recently written book by a journalist uh, in the States, The Case for Christ by Lee Strobel. Uh, and then there's obviously more than a carpenter, which probably a lot of us know already. But these, these books are great to give us confidence and specific examples for friends um, that what we're looking at is actually the truth. Uh, now you might say as we look at this passage and the other evidence that okay we can have confidence in Jesus' death and resurrection but that's in the past, that's already happened. How can I have confidence in my future salvation when it hasn't happened yet? And people have been asking this question for thousands of years. People are always worried about what's to come aren't they? I know at work if you introduce change people are always worried what impact on my life will this change have? Uh, Well, for us, how can I have confidence in my future salvation? How do I know what's going to happen? Well, and I hadn't realised this before I studied this passage, actually Paul says our salvation has already happened, at least in part. God has already completed part of our salvation. I wonder if you've ever thought about this. Uh, You see, there's more than one element that needs to happen for us to enter heaven. We don't just need to be forgiven for our sins because this leaves us pure but still not having obeyed God's law. We also need to be counted obedient and righteous to God. That is, we not only need uh, justification to have our sins removed, we also need righteousness to be credited to us so that we can enter the kingdom of heaven. It will probably be no surprise that uh, unfortunately none of us on our own have enough righteousness uh, to get credit with God uh, on, our, on our own account. We also need Jesus' righteousness uh, to be credited to us so that we can enter heaven. Jesus needed to not just die a perfect death, you know, his work wasn't all done in three days. Jesus also needed to live a perfect life, his entire life, so that as our example, he could live the righteousness and the obedience to God that could then be credited to us. So God has already completed part of our salvation, our justification. And what's more, this was the hardest bit. Again, I hadn't really thought about this until I looked at this passage. While we were still God's enemies, while we were still steeped and blackened with sin, God came 2,000 years ago and cleansed us. Now that we're standing in front of God, pure and white and clean, of course it's much easier for God, isn't it, to accept us into his kingdom. Uh, I liken it a bit to what happens after you take your dog to the park uh, and it's found something and decided to roll in it, lots if it's, uh, if it's allowed. And uh, Now if you think this is bad in the city, let me tell you when we go back to the farm, uh, there's a lot more smelly, sticky, disgusting things that a dog can find to roll around in. Uh, so much so that actually one of our dogs back home is called Smelly Alley. 
she almost spends her entire life perpetually covered in some muck or mud that she's found somewhere. Uh, so now you've got this filthy, smelly, wet dog uh, and of course the very next thing it wants to do is jump straight back into your nice clean car and come home with you. So the hardest thing to do is get close enough to the dog with some kind of towel or spray without him shaking all over you to, to clean him off. That's, uh, that's the hardest bit. Once he's clean and he kind of smells somewhat respectable, it's quite easy then to accept him into the car, isn't it? The hard bit's cleaning him up in the first place. And this is a bit like it is for us with God. We're already forgiven because of what Jesus did on the cross. So as we sit here today and God looks at us, for those of us who are true believers, all God sees is white, clean, pure righteousness, like the dog who's been cleaned up. And then how easy is it for God to take us into heaven? Well, according to the, uh, the Apostle Paul, it's dead easy. So we can know that Jesus did in fact die on the cross, uh, he did in fact rise from the dead and he has in fact died to pay the penalty for our sins. Uh, we can also know that God has in fact already forgiven our sins and justified us. All of this gives us confidence that God will in fact save us in the future at the time of our earthly death. So you ask, what does all this assurance of salvation do for us? What effects does it have? I think uh, we notice in this, chap- uh, this passage that it's quite circular in its argument and the points reinforce each other. We go back to the start where we looked at hope. It gives us hope with a capital H. It's hope in a salvation we know will happen. It's not a wish. There's nothing flexible about this. We know it's going to happen. This assurance of salvation will allow us to endure hardships and sufferings better. We're not looking forward to something that might happen and might not or we might be good enough, we might not. No, we we know that we're going to be saved. We know that one day all the pain and frustration, stress and heartbreak will be gone and we will be in heaven with our Saviour. Uh, Assurance of salvation allows us to face death with certainty. We know what is in the timeline. And it gives us joy that death will not be the end for us and death is not the end for those Christians we know. Christian funerals should be different than non-Christian funerals because we know where they have gone. And we will be able to say, as many of God's people before us have done, that the threat of death is actually the threat of heaven for us. The threat of death for us? Well, what does that really mean? If we die, it ends our pain, it ends our struggles on this earth. We get to enjoy the glorious joy and happiness of heaven for eternity. Now, death should not hold any fear for us. We might feel sad at what the impact will be on our loved ones or our friends or our family but it should hold no fear for any of us and the anticipation of better things to come. As we conclude this morning, let's remind ourselves of the questions God is asking of us. Firstly, do we find hope in our God? Does this incredible salvation he has given us as a free gift fill us with anticipation and joy every day? Uh, Secondly, do we know God's love? in the bottom of our hearts 
Do we wake up each morning knowing that God loves us more than anyone else could? Uh, And thirdly, do we have assurance of salvation? Do we trust God to follow through on his word? We know that there can be nothing surer than God will save us from eternal death and grant us eternal salvation on the day of our earthly demise. As Garth said before, no power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your incredible word and we thank you that what we believe and what we learn from it is truth and is fact and we can rely on it and stand on it. We thank you, Father, for the incredible hope that you give us, that we have waiting for us in heaven. And we pray, Father, that you would give us the joy and the motivation and the love to live out our lives on this earth until, as we so eagerly anticipate, we get to be with you in heaven. In your name we pray. Amen.